Hello, everyone. This is Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Join us as we reveal how you can become the master of your reality. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets. And I'm joined today by Dr. Lana Morrow, who's a PhD. She is award-winning functional medicine neuroscientist, founder, CEO, and creator of Think System, and is an expert in dopamine, executive functions, and neurotechnology. She has worked with students, diplomats, actors, European royalty, and Fortune 500 CEOs in Manhattan, Paris, Rome, and in now in the U.S. So, Dr. Lana, thank you very much for joining us. And today's subject, we're going to talk about cognitive dissonance. What can you tell us about that? First of all, thank you, Michael, for having me on your show again. And it's always such a treat to be in your presence um, with your illuminated ways of, of understanding realities, multiple realities. And I'm just so grateful. So thank you. And it's such a joy to, to be able to explore in depth, more in depth, some of these topics that are very important, especially now. So cognitive dissonance, we all know, it happens when we have two choices that are equally appealing and we have to make a choice. We got to make a decision and the brain actually takes a little while, takes a time to make a decision. And the question is, how does that work? What is, we all know that it's, it's tough to make a decision if you have a cookie and you have a good chocolate bar and you have a make it choice between the cookie and the chocolate bar, and you would want to have both. What happens in your brain when that happens? So um, I did, a, you know, this is not fully my research, although doing this research and understanding certain mechanisms, um, I found out that uh, by coincidence, several mechanisms that we have studied in my team and my research on, on um, you know, frontal brain and decision-making, in general, we have found that there are some interesting coincidences or not so coincidences, but maybe interesting facts that uh, we have this um, overlaying uh, fact, uh, overlaying um, database that supports both ideas, meaning that there are cognitive mechanisms, neuronal mechanisms that overlay. And so it's the same area um, of you know rapid decision-making and um, it's in the frontal area of the brain. We have to make a decision and we choose something. And once we have chosen something in general, a human being, I, I've only studied the human studies. Once we have, once we have chosen a specific, specific element, specific, um, we made a decision, we end up having then preference and higher preference for that decision, for that part, for that chocolate bar, let's say, uh, instead of for the other one. So the research has shown that this Izuma et al. from 2011, uh, the research has shown that our preference for that rejected element or rejected uh, path has actually decreased. It's almost like we're creating justifications in our brain for why we have chosen that specific path. Yeah, and I noticed that over time as well. When I was in a either combat situation or life and death, you know, parachute didn't open or 
had a, a malfunction in my uh, diving uh, apparatus or whatever, I would have this instant, uh, you know, that almost like an intake of breath. And it's, it's almost like my mind wants to go somewhere where I can't think. It just gets stuck. It's like in a loop. Yes. A loop. And uh, I've learned how to just relax out of that and then go into that, you know, the frontal lobe like you're talking about and get extremely, you know, perfect way to handle that. But I've, I've seen, unfortunately, people that get stuck in that loop and, you know, mm -hmm. they've uh, they've either done extremely, extremely poorly or, you know, to the point where they have actually died in combat. So this loop that we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of people get stuck in sometimes. We look at uh, on the here we are the anniversary of 9-11. We're seeing that a lot of people are still stuck in a loop and don't have the the cognitive awareness to critically think, you know, what actually happened on that day. They're stuck on a narrative. Yes. And that narrative is a false narrative. Yes. This false narrative has been uh manipulated for many, oh, we can go all the way back to World War II, uh, 9-11 and today so this this uh manipulative narrative captures consciousness like we were just talking about and uh and it's stuck there so how how can that be uh how can people you know from your experience your neuroscientist experience how can people learn how to overcome that it's a very good question <laughs> you're you're brilliant when you when you ask questions and i have a feeling it's it's all correlated to your experience as a navy seal and as a person who has had to lead um, many people and feeling that huge amount of responsibility for many others in your team and uh, at the same time survive yourself and make everybody survive so in spite of the imminent uh, you know momentary strong fear uh, fear of life and death. And this is exactly, I think, what we're oftentimes um, speaking about, because uh, in difficult times or in times such as this, we are experiencing massive amount of fear. And the fear is almost like this looming, looming something that we don't know really what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's usually what happens. Generally, people don't experience that, so they don't know what that is. They don't really what it is. When you, you know, you're diving and your oxygen tank may be faulting, you don't know what it could happen. So it's this fear, essentially, of the unknown, and um, you have to get yourself out of this loop. What happens is that we do get flooded with with hormones, season from from amygdala, and um, I always come back to that because it's it's always about fight or flight on some levels with human beings in animals as well. But what's interesting is that um, what you're saying is that you as a meditator, as a trained, um, you know, combat warrior, um, that doesn't entail so only, you know, beating somebody up <laughs> or with the strategy of, of good, you know, good body moves. It really mostly is in your mind you're mostly a samurai, you're mostly a Jedi warrior. So um, it's it's really about training your mind to become a Jedi mind. And what does that mean? It means to, to calm down yourself and, you know, be able to take even a figurative millisecond of a deep breath um, in your mind. 
and detach yourself from what you're experiencing. So there's this this neo moment, you know, neo in Matrix, when he realized that he is actually he is sovereign. He is the 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 agent. Everything slowed down in his in his momentum, and he was able to just go in this now moment and in a very slow motion deflect everything. But he did not even have to use the force. It's you know the force is with him, <laughs> as the Oda says, "May the force be with you." And that force is, I think, um, enabling ourselves to float in this divinity consciousness and trusting that everything is all right right now. And so that you don't tap into that fear. Therefore, this, this overlay, this over overreaching of your trust and relaxation in that, you know, almost um, divine consciousness, um, uh, sea of divine, of divine consciousness. And this is nothing else but, but brain frequencies um, where we, we end up relaxing into this detached state and this, this detached state can be trained. Of course, you have trained it and you, you have experience with that. Um, I'm a meditator. I have trained that. We end up not going into panic mode that easily or maybe even never. Because after a while, when you train a lot, you, you don't really, you, you're almost not able to go into, into stress mode because you're floating on dopamine majority of the times. And so your, your, um, those areas, the prefrontal areas, which is essentially areas of um, when, you, when you have the flood of the fear or you have to create uh, the decision in a moment that is really fast, uh, you can make it in a detached way. So your, your, your areas more actually in, you're disengaging amygdala in a way and you're engaging your decision-making mechanism that is not tied into a force mechanism of panic, but it's actually at a certain point very rapidly deliberate and very rapidly in a state of kind of blissful trust um, or blissful, you know, essentially knowledge. I would not think that it's very different from when you're advanced athlete and you're staying you're on that run, you know, let's say somebody who is an amazing skier or snowboarder, they go down the mountain and they don't really fear. And if a moment of, of you know, decision-making has to happen, how can they take that curve or how, how can they move fast in, you know, to gain that millisecond to, to gain the victory, they end up making those decisions very quickly, almost like their mind-body makes a decision, their photovoltaic body makes a decision. What was your experience with that when you... Where, what part of the being, of your being, uh, did that decision come in for you, Michael? Yeah, that, that's, uh, I mean, you're, you're nailing it. It's like perfect. Uh, the way I experience is, you know, I'll, I'll have that momentary, like, tension. Yeah. Uh, and then it's almost like a, a breath. Yes. And then it's like, boom, I'm into another state of consciousness. It's that, that quick. Now, the way I kind of like to relay it, is uh, Robert Downey Jr. had a movie where he was, uh, I think it might have been, who's the uh, like the brilliant guy that was like you know, always solving solving the murders, Sherlock Holmes. So I believe it was a Sherlock Holmes movie. It could have been another one. But anyway, he would kind of go in these states of consciousness when he was, you know, like in, almost in, in a fight or his life was, uh, you know, threatened. He would, his mind worked quickly 
and he would like have like unbelievable amounts of steps that would appear to him in his mind like slow motion huh. and he would go through and then do all those things real time and that's that's the way my mind works in those those types of situations where mm -hmm. i see something like on 9 11 when i saw you know the second aircraft hitting the buildings and i saw the you know towers collapsing i was mm -hmm. i was very very calm i was like somehow they got inside and they planted explosives so mm -hmm. i was very calm and very very knowing there was there was no question in my mind that that happened how that had happened i had no idea but i knew that 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 was the case so you know over time we we found that out even though there's a narrative that you know goes against that and says you're a conspiracy nut that if you do that but there's plenty of information experts you know engineers and so forth that have come forward and have talked about that uh that 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 is the case there's no way that that structure could have collapsed that way with just uh right. burning jet fuel so and perfectly into its footprint at freefall speed and then other buildings that collapsed or blew up that had you know little just a little bit of contact you know for burning items or something they can collapse in their footprint like building seven so there's uh there's lots of information that has given us you know enough to determine that yes this this was uh an evil act and then we look deeper and we're seeing that you know the all the places that were impacted were businesses that were investigating fraud and so even even the impact at the pentagon it was in a new build it was it basically just had just completed a new building it was a the intel navy intel they got hit almost every one of those guys was killed 39 or 40 people were killed and they were investigating things that certain people would not like to be discovered so there's all of these different things when i saw the impact that happened to the at the pentagon same thing it just took a deep breath looked at it it's like that wasn't an aircraft that hit that <laughs> so uh and then you know that that's proven itself over time and a lot of a lot of independent investigators and so forth that come forward and said that so now now here we are today with that same situation so that prefrontal cortex is very important to uh look at situations now do you want me to pull up some of the stuff that you outlined so we can uh, maybe go through some of that uh, just um something struck me what you just said and you you don't mm -hmm. You, you speak with with great deal of wisdom. So I wanted to point out something that struck me when you said something. There is a word you use, knowing. This knowing, the comfort with knowing. Yes, yes, comfort. Comfort, comfort with knowing that happens, for example, to somebody like yourself, or generally, I think a lot of I have other friends who are Navy SEALs. They they talk about that. I have also friends who are you know high level Olympic athletes, gold medalists or very advanced meditators. There is always the same topic. There is, there is this element of, yes, preparation for many, many years, many decades. It takes work. It takes steady effort. It takes diligence. It takes, you know, it doesn't come from the tree. It doesn't just come from the sky. You have to work for it. But also, once you achieve those levels of really almost, you know, it, it's a level of expertise, you end up being comfortable in that expertise, you know, yes. being very much at ease that, you know, nothing can face you, something can come at you. Okay. I can handle it. It's fine. You know, I'll do it. And you don't get that stressed out. You don't get that 
panicking. I can, I can, I would like to draw a parallel of like a neurosurgeon, you know. So let's say a parent has a has a child who has to go in surgery for for something on their brain, and um, the neurosurgeon is there. You know, the parents are are scared. They're really, really upset and scared, justifiably so, understandably so. But the neurosurgeon is calm, knows exactly what she or he will do and is there to assure the parents. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that can face that neurosurgeon. Otherwise, that neurosurgeon would not go into the surgery. For them, this is, you know, it's something that they know what they will do. And um, hopefully the results will be desirable. And we've seen, you know, millions of cases like that where you know what you do. You go for, for something yourself. You go for something, a difficult mission. You know exactly what you're doing. And um, after a while, you come out and you're, you're successful. But, you know, average person from the outside would be very scared and maybe even paralyzed in that fear. Mm -hmm. But you, I think, and many friends of mine and many of us who, who are in that state of, of um, knowing, you, you relax in that being in, in essence of divine fluctuation, divine consciousness, and you're supported. And there is a great deal of trust, not only in your expertise and your capacity, but also equally, I think, trust in divinity consciousness that you're supported. And I think that if we all achieve that, and I think it's achievable, it's, it's really possible for a lot of people to get to the level where they can actually train themselves even rapidly to get to the point where you can feel that you're supported. Okay, this is not something totally unachievable. And we can get to the level where we're supported in the knowing, and then your you know, cognitive dissonance will not have a chance of happening. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Because you bypass that level. So I'd be glad to talk about those research elements and then tie it into this knowing that you were talking about of divinity consciousness and going to the, to the so this uh, Izum article I think is really interesting is the author's name is um, yes Izuma and Matsumoto neural correlates of cognitive dissonance and choice induced preference change so this was published in um, I think 2011 or so and what's interesting is that there is a change in cognitive dissonance in essentially, and they find the correlates in, um, again, they're studying subjects who are presented with two equally preferable choices. And they tracked it trial to trial basis, meaning step by step, step by step. And they quote, their, the present study is, is identifying the neural mechanisms underlying the psychological process. And they're the first one to find it. So what's interesting is that anterior cingulate gyrus and uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So these are areas where you make, you know, are, they're, they're lighting up in fMRI studies. They light up that we have the data on that, not mine, but even, even in our, our study, we have the same area because partially you have to learn to train the brain for specific uh, decision made in a split millisecond or nanosecond and you're doing it over and over and over again. And obviously you're strengthening the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, somewhere right here. <laughs> and it's, it's a very small area, but it's an important area 
in learning by reinforcement. And so in our present day moment, we're seeing that in reality, where you, you know, you're induced to make choices by mass media, by the environment, by repetition. And it's almost, you have to, at this point, I would say it would have to be really a negator of reality if you say that you're not seeing that, that we're all being repeated the message. Same message is given over and over and over again. So that same message leaves, trains you, trains everybody's brain for uh, priming, for this neural reinforcement of the learning, you know, of, of learning, whether you like it or not, of learning of certain facts. It's, you know, constantly repeated, constantly repeated. And then if you're making a choice and you make that the choice based on this subliminal reinforcement, and even sometimes not so subliminal because it's always in your face, and it, it, you're being given that that input from every side of your life. To what degree that that decision that you made at the end is yours? Yeah. So I, I noticed that with uh, the hand to hand program that I started, some guys would come in with uh, some fear based. You know, they they would try and pull away. They'd be defensive, and uh, some of the attacks that we had. Uh, once we taught them how to be offensive in their mindset and in their attacks, uh, they came. They became extremely fast yeah. in their decision making process. Because I think a lot of us are are very defensive in our uh, in our mechanisms. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be attacked. We, but that's part of life. You know, you have all these different things come at you. What we taught them to do was look at the attack. Look at it. And, uh, and instantly understand what you're going to do in, in that split second. And once guys started to get that, they got out of that, that fear, that pullback, that, you know, trying to stop emotion. Instead of trying to stop the motion, they, they learn how to take control of that motion. And once they're in control, it's, it's, it's completely their, their game. Yes. And then because we taught people how to uh, set people up with, you know, strikes and stuff like that, where once you start, once I strike you in a certain area, you're going to react. And once you start to react to my strikes, I have control of you. So we, uh, we would teach them how to go into that type of mindset. You know, as long as you're still in the fight, someone hasn't taken you out and you're still moving, you can get control instantly. And that's mm -hmm. what we taught them. And that's what they started to do. So from that point on, we started to teach these guys how to have rapid decision-making skills. And that translated into their shooting, which it did as well as mine. Uh, my shooting uh, speed increased to an incredible level. I was able to shoot multiple targets within under a second instead of like, you know, I, before I would like to be lucky if I got one second, you know, just under one second for one shot, I was hitting three targets in under a second. So that, that was part of this, this cognitive dance that we were teaching these guys to do. The faster you can make decisions, the faster you can take control of your life and get to this knowing state that we're trying to uh, relate to people. And this is the same, Michael, that we see also in sports. You know, when you when you have a, a team, basketball team, let's say, or a team of, of uh, brilliant dancers in, in art um, when they're performing or a good band. I mean, a good band will go into a groove and um, improvise like good um, 
you know, jazz band or, or good rock band will, will end up in, in the groove where, where everybody is synchronized yeah. and flies on their skills. You have to make a decision in like a split millisecond because you have to know if somebody makes a mistake or, or goes in another another tonality, you have to accompany them and go with them. Or if you're on a basketball team um, and, you know, you have millions of moves, the possibilities are endless, but you know how to coordinate all of that with your team and being, you know, almost like you have eyes on the side of your mind or as a side of your head and behind your head and very top le level of basketball or hockey players. For example, I work with some top level hockey players they report that they, they get in the zone, they get in this no fear, just you tap into something else. So that I think taps into what I would like to add on to what you're saying is that in spite of these research data that we have for this, you know, just the three-dimensional brain level, we can combine that and overlay it with, with divinity consciousness with other other levels so that you are you become a Jedi mind, you still tap into these three-dimensional and you can dissect it with the neurological knowledge. But you can also talk about, you know, what is that that makes this, these, uh, you know, Olympic athletes that get the golden medal or those warriors that actually over and over and over time, they, they succeed in their battles like yourself. You know, what is that, that je ne sais quoi, you know, the, the moment that you end up beyond and I think it's divinity consciousness. I really do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, training the mind to in these, like the analytical process, like we're trying to, you know, relay right now, helping people understand, you know, that switch, that switch that happens that gets you into that state. I, you know, you're talking about athletes. I remember as a, you know, high school uh, running back in soccer and so forth that I would sometimes, it was just like happenstance. I would just go into that slow-mo state where everything slowed down and I had complete control. I knew exactly what everybody was going to do. I made incredible plays and I just knew when to kick, how to kick, how to run, how to, how to move. And I was like, I wish I could do that all the time. So eventually when I got into the SEAL teams after working in this consciousness field over and over and over again, you know, I, basically started to be able to switch into that instantaneously at, at will. So everyone has that ability and uh, knowing you're in that field of consciousness when it's disturbed, like it was on nine 11. And when it was during the pandemic, you know, that that is a false narrative that's being inserted because you're, you're completely aware of, of the, the divine consciousness in all human beings, and you know, and that's been in being impacted negatively. Brilliant, yeah, and that—that's what it is. It takes, um, I think, it takes all of us to elevate our consciousness so that we can actually experience heaven on earth and go to the next level and be very relaxed about everything and and know that we are the agents of our lives, that we co-create uh, our reality with divinity consciousness. We are the agents. I think as sovereign beings, we are the, the power. We are the ones we're waiting for. So there is no waiting. <laughs> there is only action of, of uh, you know, beautiful elevation. And, um, and this is, I think, also in Native Americans, they were talking about, you know, wisdom of the elders. And one of the beautiful aspects of Native American culture, for me personally, is that 
there is a huge respect for nature and huge respect for wisdom of the elders. And yeah, they're warriors. They're ready to go and fight if necessary. But they're also extremely gentle and pay attention to, they have this discernment factor, no? Uh, they're, they're learning uh, to discern since a very young age. So, you know, maybe an 80-year-old or 90-year-old um, wise, uh, wise man or woman of the tribe will actually teach a two-year-old from the day they're very young and they will teach them serious elements. They, they will not be teaching them just something that is superficial. It'll be, you know, wonderful wisdom and with great deal of love and respect and the same respect that, you know, then one pays attention to every detail being in the now. And I found that um, personally, if, if I pay attention to everything in the now moment and you're focused and you're not distracted by various distractors that induce fear or induce, you know, other thoughts, but you're really focusing on what you're doing. Let's say you're planting a plant. You just focus on that planting a plant and you get a better result. You conjoin your, your forces with nature at every level. And I think that was very beautiful what, you know, Native American warriors were doing. And I know you trained with, with the, the tribes and, and mm -hmm. elders in the sweat lodges and in your understanding how to um, how to really almost scientifically i mean it's it's really very systematic technique mm -hmm. yes. which you you teach now in your courses how to elevate people to get to the point where they can actually elevate their frequencies and stay in this um, beautiful wise wise moment of detachment yet in the flow yeah so it's beautiful so now that we, we, we've built a really nice foundation, you know, of the beautific realms of consciousness, which is a little, little, you know, point at, you know, the cognitive dissonance and how that is, is basically implemented into consciousness. Can you go into, so, you know, I hate to, hate to look at the negative stuff, but we, to understand it and understand how we can not be, uh, you know, in, have that imposed into our consciousness we need to understand it so how do how do these uh negative cognitive dissonance uh, events how are they implanted into the consciousness and how do they root there so that people just have no concept anymore of uh you know reality it seems like what what is happening there it's a very very deep question and very pertinent one too i think that well, this is not a new phenomenon now. The Tavistock Clinic has been engaged and now recently Yale, not so recently, but last five to 10 years, Yale Department of Psychology, you know, and some other specialists in, in advertising, apparently the same advertising agencies that have been advertising, you know, cigarettes and um, telling people that smoking is just very positive. Uh, then later on, we have seen the coincidences of cancer rising. And I think at this point, we have gone around the mill so many times already. Maybe it's time for all of us, humanity, to just open our eyes and say, well, doesn't this pattern, if we were to look at patterning, right. doesn't this pattern look similar to what happened in 1939, to what happened in 1917, to happen, you know, they're always identical patterns because the identical group of people and identical patterning of school of thought is being used. 
Mm-hmm. So our wisdom can be, what can we learn from history? What can we learn from the past? And um, how are they being implemented? So advertising and, and mass media, and now even our cell phones. We have cell phones and iPads that we also are willingly giving to our one-year-olds and two-year-olds, you know, in the name of uh, Baby Shark or in the name of anything that is entertaining. But, you know, Panamitsir Census was already implemented, you know, in uh, Bread and, and, and Games or Bread and Circus, however you want to call it, Gladiator Times. In Roman times, they were giving people, you know, the populace to distract them, to simply give them some distraction. And interestingly enough, our playgrounds for the adults are made in oval shape, the same shape that was in the, you know, Circus Romanum, Colosseum in ancient times. It's always the same shape. I, I think I have a feeling that it must have some sort of a meaning to it. You know, you end up going over and over again, round and round and round. It's kind of a hypnotic state of um, inducing this hypnotic state and, you know, eating food that maybe is not that great for you and just enjoying all of this uh, so much. But are you really enjoying it at the end? Is that really building your, is your body and your is your mind growing in any positive way? Yep. Uh, doing that many, many, many times, where do you go with it? And I think that's been exploited over millennia to induce almost stupor-like or certain specific type of neural connection that will distract the person from being in a now. And, you know, it's very different. It's very difficult to distract a very, very skilled athlete. A very skilled athlete will not be induced in in, in distraction very quickly, or a very skilled meditation teacher, you know, guru of, of a really substantial value, um, or um, Navy SEAL, for example, you're, you're trained to the levels that are, that are incredible. And so at a certain point, you will be always kind of self-monitoring. This is called metacognition, in, in cognitive psychology, um, you're able to watch yourself from above, you know, like almost from a little distance. And you never cease to do that. It's like whenever you're, even if you're enjoying whatever you're enjoying, there's always part of you, even a tiny bit of you, a tiny bit of your consciousness will always be monitoring there. Is everything okay? Everything is okay. And just like, you know, when you're, when you're, so I think that in present day, we have been as, as uh, humans, we have been, and, and living organisms, living beings, we have been now on attack from, from many, many different levels, you know, from being, being given food that are not conducive to, to free flow of the mind. Uh, but they're calcifying certain parts of the organs or hurting certain parts of the organs, you know, even to the point that you, you have it in certain foods are, are given to young children and they have elements in them that are really not conducive to proper growth of the brain. And then we, we just take it just like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people were taking in cigarettes and, and uh, tobacco and thinking that, that was just really beneficial to them. And now we know that it's not. Um, and so we're bombarded by so many levels and at so many levels by so many different uh, stimuli. And so uh, you can you can bombard people through, 
through frequencies on the screen, on the television, on the computer. And uh, there are certain nocive, you know, hertz values of the frequencies that luckily one can actually contrast. You know, I know you have you have um, some, uh, you know, stickers that you're, we all, at this point, majority of people have put the stickers on, on their phones and iPhones and, uh, you know, various, um, various devices, because we all have experienced tiredness of the eyes and brain fog, and you don't get it when you put those stickers on. So what is that? That that's simply taking another phase of um, value of the, you know, either Tesla value or the value of uh, frequency, and it enables the it enables to, to kind of zero out that negative effect of negative frequencies. So those are just some examples. And of course, bombardment with, with television, bombardment with meaning, subliminal meaning, or, or conscious, you know, consciously, which is being told certain things and repeating it enough, enough mm-hmm. that uh, many times that at the end, you, you partially just accept it. If, if anything, you know, by, because you're tired, you're sick and tired of hearing it being told to you so many times. That, yeah, just, yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's an excellent point. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Jaco. Join me on Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast, where we'll uncover the hidden parts of our human potential and propel you to new heights of existence and consciousness realms. As a former Navy SEAL for 24 years and CIA security officer for 11. I've been involved in aggressive combat training and operated in combat zones for well over 35 years. From Panama, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Libya, and Lebanon, I have honed my leadership, tactical, combat skills, and knowledge expertise to a master level. As a little boy, five years old, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL after watching the movie Navy Frogman. I also looked at the movies and read the books of Ian Fleming, 007, James Bond. I wanted to be that when I grew up. And I was always inspired by entrepreneurs that helped humanity and brought about great change that furthered the consciousness and abilities of humankind to master levels. I always wanted to do that. The first two I did to an extraordinary level. And now today... As an entrepreneur and speaker, reaching millions all over the world, now I'm sharing the information that really propelled me. When I was a chief enlisted officer, I motivated, led, trained, and provided inspiration and insight to officers of all ranks, all the way up to flag level, and even the Secretary of Defense for the United States. With my operational background, planning, master training, and course design abilities, I have trained thousands and thousands of military and law enforcement personnel. And now I inspire and train millions throughout the world with my intuitive insights into the workings of the human mind. I and many listening to this message are living proof that each of us have amazing potentials far beyond what most consider possible. For me, the impossible is what I strive to always master and excel at. And as a Navy SEAL and in the CIA and combat zones, I did the impossible over and over and over again. And now 
I want to help you do the same. Tune in to Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast, and join the growing tribe as I show you how to unleash your own hidden potential. I know the the mass media basically, you know, just went after Trump, you know, nonstop from the moment, even before he took office uh, and nonstop throughout the entire time. So it's not you, you can't blame people for saying, oh, we just want to get him out, you know, because they're just so worn out from being like, you know, the massive bombardment. Now we're seeing a massive bombardment with getting this uh, little venom into your arm. So there's uh, there's like this constant pounding away that's happening. How do people how do people protect themselves from that? I mean, you've, you've given some really good instances, uh, you know, the, the meditation being uh, extremely in tune with your body, like a, a, a high-level athlete does. A lot. And I agree with you, a lot of the high-level athletes, and I feel that I'm one of them, we, we just aren't uh, able to be influenced that easily. You know, we're, we're very self-aware and, and aware of our bodies and how thoughts, you know, impact our bodies. And it's like, oh, wow, what was that? And why, why did that, exactly. why did that, why did those words or why did that scenario seem like it affected me that way. So you're very, very self-aware, self-aware of, you know, how your thoughts are impacted. But I think a lot, unfortunately, most people aren't. So most people, if we look at the, uh, the social psychology of, uh, groups, we see that some groups, you know, naturally attract to each other and they seem to stay locked into these, these different forms of consciousness, whether it be an awakened, you know, aware or, uh, a dulling, you know, uh, negative type of, uh, consciousness. And we see people are in these groups. What, what causes, what causes that? And, and how can that be, uh, changed if we could? It's a very good question. Uh, well, we are all very aware of those experiments that were done in the sixties and seventies of groupthink, and that presenting, um, a person with, um, a picture of three different lines, length of the lines, and the person walks into the room and other 10 people are seemingly participants in the same experiments, but they are actually part of the experiment. Um, and they know what this one person doesn't. Um, so they're, they're all told to say that the medium length line is actually the line that is the tallest, the longest. And this person, you know, sees the line and says, well, I choose the, I don't know, the third line is the tallest. And every one of them, of the nine other participants, says, no, it's the second line that is the tallest, even though it's, it's maybe two inches shorter. And after about 15 times of repetition of this um, you know, experiment, the person who has chosen the correct line starts doubting himself. Mm. And it was a he in that experiment. And he decided to then give in and just thought, oh, maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe my perception is off. And this is the, the group pressure, you know? And I think that this is, this is um, intrinsic to human beings. And I think that we are, we're social, social beings, we're social. Uh, and I, I think that one, once we start acknowledging our sovereignty and that should be our mantra every morning. So that there is another tip that I would advise everybody to, you know, start participating, uh, using uh, this one of the little dopa hacks that you get up in the morning, you know, and before you even open your eyes, you just 
feel the gratitude that you have in your heart for everything you have already. And, and one of those, you know, elements or one of those aspects that you can be definitely be very grateful for is that you are unique. You are a perfect human being. You're perfect made at the light of, you know, light and image of divine creator. You are perfect the way you are and you're powerful and you are sovereign. And if you just tell yourself, I'm powerful, I'm sovereign before you open your eyes and I'm grateful for everything I have, that's already stepping yourself in charge as you said, you trained your your warriors to go and and be in charge rather than be um, you know be be submissive. So you end up being in charge. You, you decide what how you will make your day. You'll mold your day. You can watch everything, but you will mold your day. You'll create your day. And then at the end, step by step, this experience will accumulate. And step by step, every day as the day goes by, you will notice that um, that that things will get a little bit better tiny bit better. And you can test yourself that way. You can literally test, you can create a scale of one to 10 in your diary or in your cell phone, in your notes, and you just say, okay, today I'm going to test this with what Lana has said, you know? So let's see what, what I'll do in the morning. I'll, I'll start my day with this. I'll just take two deep, deep breaths. I'll feel my heart with gratitude. And I'll say that I'm a sovereign being. I'm going to address this day and I will create a day that I want to be creating. And at the end of the day, just give it the value of some sort, you know, like from one to 10. And then do that for like 21 days. It's usually in the research, we know that 21 plus or minus two, it takes that much time, that many days to install a new habit. And then this is a positive habit. Just like, you know, if you don't brush your teeth after three months, most likely you can get a cavity. If you do brush your teeth um, and you get in the habit of that and drink two liters of water a day, you'll be, you'll be doing better. You know, so this is a little change that could be impactful in a positive direction. Mm, that's fabulous. Wow. So I, I kind of took that, uh, that, that two breath type thing uh, whenever I was confronted with uh, different things whether it be in my training or, you know, today, uh, if there, if there's something that, you know, seems to be a little bit off, I, I just take those two deep breaths and just focus myself. There was, there was a time where we were learning how to use, uh, when I was at SEAL Team 6, uh, RPG-7, which is a rocket propelled grenade, uh, and we just gotten a bunch of tubes and rockets. So we're learning how to shoot them and not hardly anyone that was being successful with it. So the, the head guy that was uh, teaching us how to put the rocket in and you know put it on, take it off a safe and put it on fire and then shoot it. It's like, you know, not, not everybody's been doing well with this. Hopefully you can figure it out. And I was like, I'm going to do it. It's like one of those aha moments. You know, I just like, I'm going to do it. And I like put it right where I wanted it. Uh, from that point on, I'm like, everyone wanted me to shoot the RPG seven because I was like, just had that knack for just putting that thing wherever. And people, my whole you know team would would practice and practice to get as good as I did, and I just let them you know it's like when you, when you're when you're ready for me to like you know drop whatever it is you guys are focused on, let me know. And then uh, you know at the end of two weeks, they're like, Mike, can you hit this thing? And I just walk up and boom, bam, it's gone. So uh, you know, and it's just that focus, that taking those two breaths and going, I'm yeah. going to master this. And that's once I did that, I stopped letting other influences come in 
And because up to that point, I was like, well, no one else can shoot. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be any better and I don't want to be better because stand out. You know, that was the old mic. But for whatever reason, you know, I just shifted. And from that point on, it was like that with just everything. I certainly when I started the hand to hand program, we, we didn't have a hand to hand course within the SEAL teams. And I was like, I'm right. going to create one. And I just took those two breaths and went out and did it. Yeah. So it's uh, it's that way, I think, with a lot of stuff. But a lot of people, when confronted with difficult uh, situations like that, and they make a wrong choice, they rationalize, you know, it, it's not their responsibility, whereas really it is ultimately. And I think a lot of people choose not to be responsible. And that's one of the things that uh, is, is a problem in, in our culture right now. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Exactly. That's that ties exactly into what we were talking before, uh, saying before. It's a question of, of ownership. As a sovereign being, you own your actions. Mm-hmm. You're the Jedi master of your own trajectory. So you you say, "I'll do something," and you make a decision. You take three steps towards doing it, and you be you become systematic about it, and that will lead you then in being supported and being more aware. And as you said, then you created a course, you created something else, it, new ideas come in and you just wonder where do they come from? You know, why, why am I thinking about this now? You know, all of a sudden you become more creative and more because you, you, you free. So it's almost like I compare it when I talk to my clients or patients, I compare it to, to the quantity of RAM memory that you have on, on your computer. If you occupy 20% or 30% of your memory in that, you know, RAM memory, you, you occupy it with a loop that is a wrong loop. It goes into, you know, you have to clean up the data, you have to clean up, optimize the, the RAM drive. And uh, so if you have that, if you clean up that memory, so if you, in other words, if you don't go into this loop of worry and anxiety and stress, mm-hmm. um, you take that 20 or 30% of energy yep. and free it and then you you put it into the reservoir of you know cognitive reserve where you can actually use that for your other for imagination for beautiful creation it doesn't have to take a long time it can be in quantum time it can be like in the now moment you know how typical example of Albert Einstein who you know said that most of his best ideas were happening when he had a you know either played the violin or, or took a shower and I think all of us is because the element of water is very powerful. Uh, we're water beings. Our brain is made out of water, you know, majority of it. And we are the wavelengths of, of certain specific frequencies, even of conscious universe, touch us or start synchronizing with us in that state more than in others. And then if we free ourselves of worry, and we can actually do that deliberately, we can just like you can say, okay, I'm not going to um, take a shallow breath for three minutes. I'll just pay attention to my breathing for maybe even two minutes. I'll just take deep belly breaths and let's see where that leads me. And just observe. It's it's magical. It, it's oh, actually yeah. very good. Very good. Is that our bodies are magical, and so you end up just watching how you breathe. And then suddenly you'll see, oh, I was breathing a little bit shallow before, you know, I can breathe deeper. And what happens to my brain if I breathe deeper? It gets more oxygen. What happens to my, my diaphragm? What happens to my, you know, uh, spinal fluid? 
Um, it's just all of this is connected. If you have more motion in the spinal fluid, you have more uh, trace minerals going into your brain and more food to your brain, more oxygen to your brain. So, of course, you'll start getting more ideas. You'll just start thinking calmer and sharper. So there are little tricks that you can do and that we can all do without really always engaging in kind of um, subliminal agreement with, with worry. Maybe we can disagree with worry. Yeah, very good. And uh, I think that's uh, one of the things, the next question I had was, um, and I think you just answered it kind of, if you're not in that worry state, because a lot of people stay in a worry state, they're always worrying about something. Yeah. And and some people are like, if I'm not worrying, then it's, I'm not, I'm not being, you know, proactive for, you know, my, my children, my, my life or whatever. But uh, I think the opposite is the case. Right. When, you know, like when I'm listening to you, I'm very, very relaxed. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm engaged with you. I'm not thinking about worrisome things, you know, it's, and it's the same with me my whole life. I don't think of worrisome things, right. but I, I believe a lot of people that do when a cognitive dissonance uh, event comes in like an earthquake or forest fire or, you know, uh, pandemic or whatever might come in, they are worry warts. So they get entrapped into that negative uh, concept instead of like we're talking about, I can look at it and go, that's not a threat to me. You know, exactly. that's, that's, I, I, and it won't be a threat to my family. And I'm going to make sure that that's, that's the way my thoughts grow. But a lot of people are like, <gasps> you know, and then bad things happen to them because they attract it because that's where they're focused. How is, is, is that some of the things that you've seen as well as far okay. as the, yeah. Okay. And I think what's also interesting is that, uh, those people who, in those moments of tragedy, don't focus on themselves, but focus on the others, in the service of others, and help the the next person, or those first responders, or people who, you know, firefighters, mm -hmm. or people when, let's say, you have an earthquake that happens. We all kind of live through minor or major earthquakes sometimes. And what can happen is that you can decide to stay underneath the desk or in your, you know, on the open space by yourself and tremble in fear. Or you can say, okay, how can I help that person that is hurting? How can I help that elderly lady who needs a blanket? How can I help somebody who needs a cup of tea? Where can I get a cup of tea? How can I be of service? And you stop worrying in those loops that then create depression and anxiety, but you end up being in service, you know, of your next of kin. And I think that's a very simple, very easy way of, of staying in the now because you have to go get that tea. You know, you have to go be in the presence, but you're not worried. You're really active and, and going to help somebody. And that is a very quick way of, of getting out of that loop of fear. And if you don't, so research shows that if you, if you have that tremendous amount of fear that impacts you, and if you compound it by constantly worrying in that time for next few hours, that fear will install itself in that loop and it, it'll, it'll etch the memories in the hippocampal area much stronger than if you are a first, you know, a responder who is altruistic and who has also faith that, you know, everything will be okay. You know, there is always something. We may have a really hard time and, and then 
you know, you'll resolve it one way or another. And uh, you'll resolve it with, with help of maybe your friends or your colleagues or your other people or, you know, God, divinity, consciousness, call it whatever it is. But you'll resolve it. And you're, you're thinking about how to just help something, somebody else. You're getting out of that loop of worry very quickly. That's beautiful. And I think that's uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, helped uh, me and the team, SEAL teams and other groups that are like that. That's why they're so successful is because they're group oriented, you know, always thinking, you know, how they can support the group and be, take the group to a, a higher level. One of, one of our mottos when I was in uh, SEAL Team 6 was uh, every place we go, we leave it better than when we arrived. And wow. that's, that's the way that, you know, that consciousness, when people start to think like that, it really makes a difference uh, in reality. So you look at, you know, first responders, like you're talking about uh, the police or, you know, uh, nurses and doctors and so forth, they're actually being imprinted to not be, you know, helpful with, uh, you know, the new consciousness that's trying to be implemented as we see people that have not, you know, decided to, you know, go along with the, the program are, you know, being targeted, like they shouldn't even get care. So I think that some, I don't, I doubt there's very, very many, but there's probably some doctors and nurses that are, are taking on that type of mentality, which is counter to everything that, that we've always been taught that, you know, the caregivers are, are the ones that really go out of their way. So they're trying to break down that system so that's another cognitive, uh, you know, dissonance that we're we're seeing this constant attack on uh, the things that are good, just like you were talking about, you know, how people respond to certain things. Are there words? So I can I can tell you that you know I I taught people a dialect and so forth. Uh, I taught people that fear was you. We cannot you know focus on that word or um, negative or. Uh, defensive, all these, all these words created a stoppage in the human brain, a, a, like, uh, you know, instead of taking that, uh, you're, uh, you're stopped in your consciousness. So we started to notice that words, you know, just like a gun pointed at your head, you know, mm -hmm. if you use certain words, it was almost like somebody pointed a gun and pulled a trigger. Mm -hmm. You're, you're basically boom, you're gone. Yes. And so we, we taught guys how to, you know, bypass certain words, not use certain words in their conscious states of thinking and so forth. And that also uh, quickened response times and so forth and uh, interactability, interoper interoperability. So they're better, better warriors, better team operators uh, all, all the way around. So, you know, the dialect that we're hearing from certain propaganda and so forth uh, understanding, you know, these words and not letting them come in and invade your consciousnesses are, are some, another thing that we need to be aware of. Very much so. And I think it's really important because words carry power. Words do carry power. So if you're kind to yourself and to the others, and if you're aware of that usage of your words and phrasing that you're using it, even the tone of voice, you can actually modify a lot of good feelings and bring a lot of good feelings to the others. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, especially um, if, if there is something that is in the present, you know, reality that is going to induce fear or induce stress, we're so easy um, and quick to say, we have been habituated to that, uh, to say, oh, you know, I'm stressed out today. 
And how about, you know, maybe not using that phrase, but start using the phrase of, you know, um, and looking at it also as yet another, you know, challenge, but you're, you're an obstacle solver, you're a problem solver. So no problem for them, for you, you know, it's really, um, you can, you can look at a day as every day, no matter what, it'll be a good day for me and for the others, you know, uh, yeah, beautiful. it's a challenge, but if you, let's say if you, if you have a challenge of a chess game, or if you have a challenge of, of a basketball play, no, We'll stay with the basketball. You, you figure out that that you'll find out a way of playing around, pivoting around that player, one way or another. You'll you'll end up ten times, twenty times, the thirty time you you will you will dunk that basket. You know you'll figure out that that mm, that series of steps that that are necessary for winning that that one score, and it's a joy. Now you you end up feeling very joyous, very. A challenge, but really you're, you're happy about it. But if you approach it with, oh my goodness me, what will happen here to me? Ooh, I'm, I'm not good. I can't, I can't do that. This is so stressful. Then, you know, the basketball game, you're not played. You know, it's not, not very happy. So I don't know if that makes sense, but. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So you brought up earlier when we were talking and it, I thought it was uh, fascinating because I'm, I'm big history buff that uh this current emasculation of consciousness uh has has been an ongoing process that has started quite far back and they've uh perfected this over time can you give us a little insight on that and maybe not not too deep but uh you know because we don't want to blow people out but i think that uh if we give them kind of a an idea that this is an ongoing process uh that has been developed and, and perfected once we see that, then we can start to, uh, you know, have our own, like we've been talking about, our own ways to overcome that. Yes, that's a very good question. And I think it might be useful to your audience, uh, to your beautiful, smart uh, people who are watching these programs. Um, I think if you, so I think the big, big um, strategy uh, trick is always, or learning curve is, it happens in the patterning. You know, you observe the pattern. Mm -hmm. What is the pattern of um, what will what will we do with this? What has happened in the history? So what is the, you know, without going into details, you can just observe that before any war, there was always some sort of some sort of calamity. And so you can just look into the last two, three hundred years and see this patterning of the wars. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that there was always some unknown, you know, health threat, some unknown difficulty that was faced by a lot of people and um, globally actually, mm -hmm. or in specific areas that were targeted. And so you can see that pattern. You don't have to take my word for it. You can just look at it. And this is just, you know, what I have observed, but you can observe the patterning in 1918, 1937, and you can also observe the patterns of solutions. So we tend to look for patterns of, you know, impact and how does that hurt us? How does that negatively impact us? But what if you also observe the patterns of victory, of patterns of how did people come out of it? What happened? And gener generally, you have always this pattern that there is a tipping point. 
where people can't take it anymore and it makes so much no sense anymore. It's like, it's so absurd. At that point, you decide, we all together decide we're not going to take it anymore. It's as simple as that. And you can see that in young child. You can see there is a, I think there was a meme going around of a young girl trying to put a straw in a cup cup of coffee or cup of, cup of water. And she was putting this straw and it didn't go, didn't go, didn't go. And after a while, she just threw the cup and everything left. And it's cute when it comes to, you know, a two-year-old. But I think this is, we're all that two-year-old. We're all the kid on the side of the road. You know, we're just observing, watching. And a smart kid on the side of the road will look at a pattern. And it doesn't have to be a pattern of frustration. It can be a pattern of victory. You know, just like, okay, like you said, there are ways of, of solving this pattern, the, this problem, this issue or challenge. So it's not even a problem. It's not negative. Like, let's use positive language. And, um, you know, like you when you observe a team huddling um, in rugby or in, in football, they will not be, you know, docile or, or sad when they start the game. You know, they want to win that tournament. So they'll go, ha, ha, rah, rah, and go in and they'll talk to each other and even, you know, metalinguistically with a nod, with a wink, with, with whatever, body, body language. But they'll coordinate everything. And because they up their frequencies as a group, they will go to the next level. But they learn from the positive patterning over many 20 years, you know, 10 years of their playing and over games. And they will find a strategy that works. So you look at the patterning of the strategy that works, and it usually is connected to the heart. It usually is connected to the value that you hold dear, not by chance, wars, you know, are won by people who are being attacked. Because they have it in it. It's their, their, their land. It's their land of the free. It's their land. It's their heart. So they will not give that up. You know, so you, you won't. Mama bear is, is really, you better not mess with the mama bear. You know, yeah. it is mothers now being so impactful in a very beautiful way because you're not going to harm children. It's just not feasible. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a tipping point always in the history that at a certain point, a nation or a group of people will just say, no, we're not going to take it anymore. We can do better. We can learn what happened from before and we can engage in such a way that we can bypass what is not serving us. And we can be in a service of what serves us and serves our team, our land, our, our nature. And we can, we can coordinate all of that, not with aggression, but with peace and loving heart, harmony with divinity consciousness, divine, and with ourselves. And I think that's, you know, my modest opinion, that's that's what I have observed and studied and learned. Yeah, humanity always overcomes. And that's uh we're we're at that tipping point like you're talking about right now. And we're we're going to win and because we always do. And I, I'm not I'm not concerned about it. You know, I see the see the patternings like you're talking about that have happened throughout time, you know, the different revolutions, whether it was the uh you know, Russian Revolution or you know, Nazi Germany or what, whatever it was, you know, the patternings were, were there. People overcame those patternings and that's what we're, we're at right now. We're at that point where we're about ready to overcome these patterns. We're reaching the tipping point where we've had enough and we're going to push back and, uh, and win. It's like we always do. 
So that's that's the beauty of human consciousness. And like we've been talking about, it can be uh, manipulated and controlled, but eventually it breaks free and breaks out. This time, I think in history, it's slightly different. I absolutely love what, what Laura Eisenhower talks about, or um, I had a brief chat with, with Alex Collier about it. It's just about elevating your consciousness to the next level in this point in history. And for our planet, we're all going to the next level. So it's different from previous 2,000 or 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's mm-hmm. even different from last 26, 20 6.9 thousand years. Um, we're getting to the next level and next level of consciousness of humanity. And it's a beautiful, that part is, is, is extraordinary that we're actually living in times such as this that is just elevating all of us. We'll all get to the next level and we'll all be fully sovereign and fully aware of our sovereignty and our full capacities of everything that our photovoltaic body can do, self-healing, joy, expansion, elevating each other, and not in a very, you know, she she kind of woo way, but in a in a very substantial, discerning way, mm-hmm. but filled with love and respect. Yes, absolutely. A lot of people can't see what that is, and that's because it's never been done before. Yeah. So the 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 key is to focus on, like you were talking about, the this whatever that is you know, arriving there. I didn't know what it was going to be to help me shoot the RPG seven better. I just knew that I was going to do it and I just got up there and did it. So that's where we're at right now. So we're, we're going to do it. We're just going to make this thing happen and don't fret on, you know, not achieving something because then you're not going to. So it, it sounds very simple. A lot of people want to know exactly what it is they're going to do. It's an unknown. So you have to be able to take that leap of faith. And that's the thing. That's the beautiful thing right now. And that's the beautiful thing about human consciousness that we're able to evolve to a level that we've never experienced before. So that's, that is a very beautiful thing we're in right now. Yeah, that is beautiful. And you know, if if we all have moments where it's hard and I think um, the best trick that I think we can all do is to go out in nature and, and, with our favorite song, favorite happy song, uplifting song in our earpods and um, earbuds and, and just, you know, maybe take a jump or a skip or dance to, to the three minute song just to elevate, quickly elevate our frequency, you know, shift it. Uh, that's beautiful. And uh, Lana, thank you very much for bringing your very beautiful scientific brain into this and, you know, helping people think. How can people reach you if they want to? Oh, thank you, Michael. It's always such an honor and such a pleasure to commune with you. It's really brilliant. You're just amazing. And it's uh, such a joy too, you know. People can reach me at um, thinkinterfaces.com. I uh, don't know whether you'll post a link, but that's my Definitely, web. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thinkinterface.com, we'll put that link down in the uh, description box. And uh, this and- will also go up on Rumble. So my uh, Telegram, and I'll send you the link so you can put it up on your site or however you want to share it as well. So we'll get this information out here. It's very, very beautiful what what you've shared today. Thank you so much. Thank you for these brilliant questions, and um, I think we're all training people, you know, for for getting to the next level. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Some help their health. Very no. good. Thank you very much. Thank and, you. And thanks everyone for joining us, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.
Thank you so much for listening to Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Until next time, stay in the love vibration as you continue your journey to become the master of your reality.